travellers, and welcome to Podcast 49 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder, and I'm delighted that today we have not one but two special guests, and I can scarcely believe that we've got almost all the way to 50 podcasts without talking to them. Uh, Nikki Gardner and Susanna Kreese, they are the authors of Europe by Rail, the definitive guide for independent travellers and editors of Hidden Europe magazine, as well as dear friends who I last saw in the heart of Luxembourg City on the 29th of February this year when we were uh, assembled there for um, to celebrate the first country in the world to bring in completely free public transport. It seems about 100 years ago now, but you very kindly agreed to talk to us about railways because today is a very special day. Um, tell, tell us what's happening today. Um, we're recording this, by the way, on Sunday the 13th of December. Well, it's uh, nice to be here. <laughs> it's Simon and Nick. And um, yes, today is uh, the day of the timetable change. So it's an annual event where um, Europe's uh, rail operators bring out new timetables. And of course, it's something we always look forward to, I might say. And uh, Though one has to say this time, it's uh, possible that more than ever, the new timetables are a pragmatic compromise between hope and caution. Um, and uh, generally some big changes are uttered in, but uh, we think some of them will be slightly postponed. Um, Nikki, what do you... Yes, um, good morning, both of you. And uh, we were really hoping today to see the first direct train from Zurich to the Mediterranean coast for many years. That was a Zurich to Genoa train which was there in the draft timetables, but it is one of many which have fallen by the wayside because of restrictions in travel across the Swiss-Italian border just now. Um, but there have been many new introductions to the timetables. We're very pleased to see, as of this morning, a new direct day train between Berlin and Krakow. Um, uh, Nikki and, and, and uh, Susanna, I wanted to ask you uh, if... Uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, this seems a very appropriate uh, metaphor, uh, um, actually, for what we're talking about today, uh, really does turn out to be a light. Um, what are the sorts of things that UK travellers who um, may be allowed into Europe can really look forward to, if we were sort of thinking probably about the middle of next year? Well, we're going to see the return of night trains to the Netherlands. So that's absolutely a boost for UK travellers as well, not just for the Dutch, because you'll be able to leave London mid-afternoon, travel to Amsterdam, and then join a direct night train uh, to um, Vienna um, or Innsbruck or Munich. Um, travel from uh, Britain to Scandinavia will become a lot easier from late March, where there's going to be a new night train from Hamburg to Stockholm. So um, I think, you know, although at the moment there's some fairly dark COVID clouds, one of the things we have seen is rail operators having a big rethink about what sorts of services they might want to be able to run in 2021. And overall, I think the outlook is quite promising. Yeah. Can, can I just check I th something I think is an urban myth, but um, I'd love to run it past you. Um, Sunday, the 13th of December is a really odd time to introduce new timetables. <laughs> yeah. And it is the big annual timetable change. Is it 
a fact that um, the European rail operators decided this was going to happen on New Year's Day. And the French um, said, uh, no, um, our ski season is already underway. We have to bring it forward three weeks because otherwise um, we're going to be in the position of um, having uh, to chop and change our ski trains. Is, is that correct or is there some other historic accident that explains it? That's interesting. I've read exactly the same anecdote, um, Simon. It was uh, in um, one of the anniversary editions of the old Thomas Cook European Rail Timetable, when the then editor of the timetable um, said exactly that. I suspect there may have been something a little bit more pragmatic in it as well, that you have some fairly peak travel days around Christmas and the New Year, particularly the New Year. And I just wonder whether it was European rail operators wanting to get the new timetable bedded in and settled down um, for a couple of weeks prior to the Christmas and New Year peak. That sounds entirely sensible. But um, look, these days, and you mentioned Thomas Cook and the great days when that was all that the traveller needed to get around Europe. But now um, uh, an internet connection and um, some airline websites are probably going to do the trick, not to mention um, uh, cars and boats and so on. So can you define the attraction of train travel for us? Well, um, I think to us, it's definitely making time for the journey. Uh, making time to appreciate landscape and things happening outside. Hopping um, on long distance trains is a great um, possibility to actually uh, take time out of life as well a bit. So kind of winding down. And um, yeah, to me, that's that's the attraction in a way, kind of. Yes, I think one of the things that's so interesting is that in recent years, there's been a uh, overwhelming emphasis upon destinations. Um, Travel literature, the travel pages of the media, blogs, are so full of the destination that we've perhaps forgotten about the importance of the journey. And what's absolutely wonderful about the train journey is that it creates that gap between leaving home and arriving at the destination. This is something to be cherished, to be valued in its own right. And I think that's one of the absolute reasons why Susanna and I very much value train travel. There's something else you kind of call say, you'd get that in a car. I think we're very sociable creatures and we like the communal nature, the shared experience, which you get when you go on a train to board a train in the morning here in Berlin, knowing that we are going to travel during the day to the Alps. And there's the theatre of the arrivals of other people on the train, the departures, the characters, the lunch in the restaurant car, all of this adds up to an experience which is beyond compare. It certainly, I have to say, beats the hell out of travelling by plane. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I I quite understand that. Um, uh, Now, you you just said that uh, you're speaking to us from Berlin. I I don't really know Berlin very well, but I imagine it must be something of a a great hub for uh, international rail travel. Is Is that a fair comment? It certainly is, Mickey. We'll have to get you to Berlin sometime. Oh, yes, please. A, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole texture and, and uh, style of Berlin and the development of the city was tightly were, uh, bound up with the um, train. Prussian commerce and ingenuity and all of its successes, not just in real exports of goods, but also the intellectual capital, the ideas 
which were disseminated from Berlin through people coming to the city by train, continuing by train. So it's a city which was shaped in the 19th century by the train. And it's still a city which where trains are very important. You know, when sometimes we will, uh, on a summer evening, wander down to the city centre and looking at the departure boards and the uh, Hauptbahnhof and seeing the night train that departs to Vienna with true carriages to a small town in southeast Poland with Slovak um, couchettes with Hungarian sleepers watching the train leave to Moscow. This gives you a different sense of Europe, yeah. a different sense of one's place in the world. Yes, of connectedness, maybe. Though, though I have to say, you have to give it to Vienna to be the probably the best connected city, isn't it? So... I was just wondering about something that the uh, COVID uh, pandemic has rather uh, underlined or highlighted, which is our stereotyped view of Germany as being um, very efficient. And uh, I wondered whether that does actually um, bear out when you're talking about uh, trains running on time and not being cancelled. Okay, well, um, can I destroy the illusion? (laughs) No, please don't. Germany doesn't have a particularly good punctuality record, to be honest. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes, I think it has just been, um, I think probably just been looked at again, kind of for long distance train. I think trains, there's just an 80% uh, punctuality. uh, Compared with something like 96% in Switzerland. Wow. So I know Brits love to think that all German trains are (laughs) bang on time, Um, but sadly it's not the case. But having said that, If the train is late, there's always another one half an hour later. And perhaps we just don't get as worried about it here as people do in the UK. The other thing, of course, the trains here are very clean. They're nice spaces to be. They are very comfortable, many of them. So perhaps the very positive view that uh, outsiders have of German trains is, in fact, generally well justified but um, when it comes to punctuality, we're not, not, I'm afraid, top of the European league table where we'd like to be. Um, tell us what other countries have kind of got got the railways right in terms of, um, well, price and speed and punctuality and you know, all the other things, comfort and cleanliness and so on. Well, I think we've mentioned Switzerland already, and I guess we would be yeah strong advocates of the Swiss system. They've got a very, very good integrated um, system where kind of buses meet trains and so on, and and of course you you get everything on one ticket, and and that and comfort levels are very high. Um, it's maybe not the cheapest travel, but it's certainly very very well organised and very punctual. I'm saying, Nikki, what do you think? Definitely, yeah. I think to that, we'd definitely throw in Austria. Um, Spain, with the caveat that you do need on any medium or long distance train, you do need to reserve a seat in advance. But this gives a very nice feel to many of the trains that uh, there's not normally more people on them than there are seats for. So um, I definitely like Spain. A country we're both great fans of for rail travel is the Czech Republic. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely brilliant value, mm-hmm. beautiful network of um, branch lines, uh, good core um, mainline network with high quality trains with decent, decent restaurant cars. Hard mm-hmm. to beat a Czech uh, schnitzel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
And uh, yep. then lots of meandering branch lines, often served by um, fairly, fairly antiquated diesel rail cars. <laughs> um, but these are the sort of trains which um, the good Dr. Beeching in uh, Britain uh, would have scrapped, you know, sort of whenever that was in the 1960s. But these uh, this very dense network of uh rural trains have survived in the Czech Republic. That's a very good tip. Um, can I change the subject to night trains, which you mentioned a bit earlier? Um, they're obviously convenient and uh, romantic as well, at least in theory. But uh, I'd like to know whether the uh, current ones are more comfortable than they used to be. I remember once, uh, uh, it was a long time ago, travelling from uh, Madrid in Spain to Granada on a very, very slow overnight train. Uh, and I was jammed in this compartment uh, which was completely full for the whole 10 hours or however long it was and I remember uh, I was stuck between uh, on one side of me uh, a civil guard one of those um, rather scary um, uh, Spanish uh, policemen uh, and on the other side was a nun and I was wondering to myself if I fall asleep which shoulder should I fall onto? <laughs> anyway, are, are, are things better now? <laughs> it, it sounded, Mick, to us as if you've not really been in a sleeper or couchette at that moment. So, um, so I think that's the one thing we would say. It is uh, go for the real night train experience and not for, you know, a train that happens to run through the night or something. Oh, like that. Yeah. Um, but yes, so I think you still get a mix of comfort levels but some of them at best can be can be actually very good can be very comfortable and uh, I'd say um, however one should consider which stretches one would want to go uh, on a night train and which one not because if you if you really want to you know if alpine scenery for example, is uh, something you'd be looking forward to, then you shouldn't go from Zurich to Vienna by night, for example. So the views can be a bit of an issue. Would you say that as well? Yeah, I think you have to have a pretty Philistine approach to landscape to um, want to take Zurich to Vienna night train, which is just one of the most joyous, glorious journeys to do in a comfortable railjet by day. So um, that's one to avoid. But um, honestly, Mick, going back to your question, night trains have changed completely. When I travel from um, Berlin to London, sometimes I take the Russian night train from Berlin to Paris, which is just a, a wonderful train to travel on. It consists entirely of sleeping cars. There are no couchettes. There are no seated compartments. Oh, actually, no. There is one carriage which is um, not a sleeping car and quite properly that's a restaurant car. So it's a, it's a wonderful experience to get on the train and to retire um, uh, after a nice dinner to crisp, clean sheets and to wake up the next morning knowing I'm going to be trundling down the Marne Valley approaching Paris from the east with glimpses of the Champagne vineyards. I love the idea of, well, in, in the aviation context, these are known as sixth freedom journeys, where you travel between two countries on the airline 
of a third. And so you've just given me a, an idea for six freedom trains. I'm sure we could do an entire podcast on how you can go from Germany to the Netherlands on a Hungarian train or something. But uh, yes, I love the idea of traveling from, from, from Berlin to Paris on a train that began its journey in Moscow. Um, But talking of night trains, I happen to know, because you've kindly talked to me about this in the past, that first of all, you're not averse to uh, flying. You're not averse to flying long distances, but you have a very particular approach to um, long haul air travel, which I've simply never heard of anybody else doing. So please reveal it. One always wants to um, defer to the wishes of one's partner and Susanna I have to I have to reveal it's very rare we talk about this but Susanna is not a great one for night flying so um, we do have to plan long-haul journeys very carefully because it's absolutely strictly written into um, uh, the uh, implicit agreement between us that we only fly by hours of daylight oh, uh, wow. requires oh, quite a lot of careful planning. It suits my interests as well because um, I'm so interested in landscape. I never get on a plane without a um, rucksack full of maps. Ah. I, I really do like to follow where we're going. <clears throat> if I'm flying over Socotra Island, I want to know the fact and I want to be able to see it. So it suits me perfectly to um, fly only by day. And of course, this has the huge um, advantage that it almost goes back to the uh, golden age of long haul flying where you did. Everybody flew to, say, Cairo or these days, I guess, Abu Dhabi or Dubai. Everyone got off the plane, including the crew. Um, They all went to a hotel, went to sleep and then picked up the journey the following day. Absolutely. I mean, I should say we fly very, very sparingly, um, hardly ever in Europe, but but, uh, we certainly do long haul flights. We um, do them actually because family connections overseas. And when we go to visit family, as we have done, we're just very careful about the routes we choose and we fly only by day. And sometimes it does mean multiple stopovers, but we're getting a long way from train. (laughs) We are, aren't we? (laughs) You're quite right. I was going to ask you, you must take lots of maps with you, but let's forget about that because I want to ask you um, what a good uh, entry level rail trip would be for somebody who's had time during um, during the various lockdowns and confinements to think about different ways of traveling what would be a great trip do you think starting from let's say london for the sake of argument yes if one i mean it's, it's you you'd said something that is probably at everybody's heart mick which is planning the next thing to do or something like that, when one can travel again. And I'd say um, staying lo- local would be one of the things that might be nice. So if you've not been loads on the trains, maybe just doing first little outings. But and one of the things, if you go from London, certainly why not heading to Scotland? Um, maybe not on one of the mainline trains, one might say, but uh, uh, could either go... If you, if you wanted to stay, you know, in the night tra- uh, train theme, you could either go first um, on the night train from, from London uh, to um, Glasgow, for example, or Inverness, or, or Inverness exactly, mm. even further, it'd be mm. nicer. Um, or you could go, of course, also by day and maybe use the uh, line from Settle to Carlisle and that, which is lovely and has an absolutely wonderful scenery. I mean, yeah, I, could, I can imagine a wonderful mm. 
circuit, for example, from London to Sky and back again, perhaps mm. going out, as, as we said, perhaps night train to Inverness. Mm. The Inverness to Cairo line is brilliant. Yes. It's the only line in Britain where on a single train you see both the East Coast and the West Coast on the same train journey. A mm. um, couple of days in Cairo, uh, uh, sorry, a couple of days in Sky. Um, ferry then perhaps from southern end of Sky from Armadale to Malague and then return by train from Malague through Glenfinnan, Fort William and then yes I think your idea Susanna mm. of actually meandering south through um, uh, southern Scotland and northern England mm. taking in minor routes like the Settle and Carlisle. There's mm. so much to be discovered in Britain where I think many of your listeners perhaps um, spend too much time on the 814 from Woking to Waterloo and have utterly forgotten that there can be a bit of romance in the train. Uh, a, a quick warning here, which I must uh, point out, which is that uh, ScotRail has today cut uh, 20% of its trains. Similar cuts being made across the UK network as a result of the collapse in demand for rail travel. Um, I, what, what I wonder is the worst European you, train you have ever been on, Susanna and Nikki? Um, let me think. Um, we once did a journey from London to Eastern Europe and uh, we changed in Berlin onto a Ukrainian night train. Um, but the problem was that it was in winter and... Uh, it was bitterly cold outside and inside. Um, I think the uh, Provodnica uh, has decided to, to actually <laughs> uh, counter that by putting on the heating uh, absolutely high so that you, I think we had, I don't know, a felt 28 degrees or something like that in the compartment, uh, which uh, was not very useful for actually falling asleep, but it had a, had a nice communal aspect, I felt, kind of, because uh, everybody was obviously too hot and everybody left the doors open of their compartments and it was, you heard the bubble, you know, of voices next door and that, <laughs> but it, it made for a pretty, pretty bad night. I don't uh, know. So, um, oh, should... Plata was getting off the train next morning at minus 15 degrees <laughs> or something that led to uh, various calls developing. I think. I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I remember I made a mental note that if ever I saw carriage 272 of the of the Odessa railway again, I would um, immediately cancel my journey. But I should say in fairness to Ukrainian trains and yeah. also to Odessa, which is a wonderful city, I should say in fairness to Ukrainian trains, we've made many very fine journeys on Ukrainian railways and perhaps it's another of those countries in Europe which have um, got trains right. Uh, just just to point out for people who are perhaps not as familiar as you and I, uh, Provodnitsa is the, the woman who sits at the end of the sleeping carriage who has absolute control over absolutely everything um, and is never to be, uh, to, to, to be crossed. Is that, is that a fair assessment? <laughs> well, that's why we mentioned the Provodnik yeah. as well, which is the male counterpart. So just to kind of not get too stereotypical, but you're right there on, uh, on Russian and Ukrainian trains, there are, I think, usually two kind mm. of guards on, I think, every even during the day as yes. well, I'm just thinking, mm. yes. Uh, um, they, they are, you know, they are also very helpful. So you can get chessboards, 
tea, um, soups and whatever from them. So in that way, you know, there's a positive side as well. <laughs> yes, it's a kind of hardline cabin crew is the way I see them. <laughs> I like the idea and I think uh, we might... Um... Uh, put in a proposal to um, Southern <laughs> Rail for um, instead of cutting uh, all their onboard staff, actually increasing them and chessboards and soon. <laughs> what a great idea! Um, anyway, look and uh, let's. Um, how about the uh, counterbalancing uh, question uh, after the worst train? What about the best? Um, in terms of great trains that we've been on, um, perhaps we can identify specific kinds of carriages we're always on the lookout for swiss panorama oh. carriages um and they pop up lots and lots of places in fact a first class swiss panorama carriage on a train trundling up the rhine valley um is hard to beat uh, these are very spacious they have an airiness uh view of landscape the last time we saw you simon you mentioned was in luxembourg and it was the next morning when we left, we travelled from Luxembourg to Goblenz and plotted our route in such a way that we could then use a Swiss train to go south up the Rhine Valley to Mannheim and we got in a panorama car. Um, you'll find them in the new timetable on even quite humble um, trains between Zurich and Chur. Um, there's a lovely one. A couple of years ago, I travelled from Graz to Innsbruck in Austria and there was a Swiss uh, panorama carriage on that particular one. So definitely, we would definitely rate those. Time now for our We Should Have Been There questionnaire, for which, of course, you, Susanna and Nikki, may well have the same or different answers. Your favourite destination? Um, mine would be uh, Trieste and Lviv in Ukraine. So kind of two here. That's two. Does that mean I don't get one? How can I still choose? Go on. Okay. Uh, Laveau Vineyards, north shore of Lake Geneva. The view is wonderful. The wine is good. Excellent. Now, what about your favourite souvenir? Um, we would say we like bringing back some local wines, I might say. So that should be, I think, the answer. Is there any particular place where the wine is particularly good or one that you really, really um, remember? Well, Wonderful wines from Moldova and Ukraine, which are not so very available in the West European market. And dare I give another plug for Switzerland, because we are great fans of Swiss wines, which takes us back to the Laveau vineyards. Which takes us on to the strangest brew you've drunk, uh, possibly on a train. Well, actually, Simon, mine wasn't on a train. I was um, travelling in North Africa many years ago on the Tunisian-Algerian border, um, why, not very wisely, I'm sure you'd think. I was by myself um, and I was in a Land Rover and got stuck on the edge of a body in some soft ground. And I really needed somebody to help get the vehicle out. So I made um gesture to the kids who immediately turn up in such situations, dozens of them, and um, indicated I needed some help. And uh, they came back with a couple of their mums and a goat. And... Uh, <laughs> I was expecting more like a tractor and a rope, but they came back with a couple of their mums and a goat, uh, and the goat milked, and the temperature was like 36 degrees, and I was extremely flustered, and I drank this warm goat's milk, and I have to say it didn't agree with me. I don't think you guys know the rest of this. Well, I should give you the postscript, which is that the tractor did turn up, 
and the rent the Land Rover was rescued and I um, made my exit. Thank goodness for that. Gosh. Now, um, what about the best meal you've had? And I think it's got to be a restaurant car meal. <laughs> I... Uh, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> I doesn't have to be. Though. That's good. No, we love restaurant car meals. Obviously, it has been mentioned quite a bit. But um, uh, I would say, you know, it's also how it depends on the situation. I would say, but I very much remember uh, wonderful local Italian cuisine uh, on the first of January in Sicily, having freshly grilled lamb. So I think I remember that so much. But, oh. uh, Yes. We were just driving through um, some forests uh, on um, the uh, edge of Etna and uh, there was a um, what looked like no more than a hut in the forest with a cluster of cars around it and there was the grill being fired up with lamb cutlets and so on and it was just wonderful. Yes. Well, uh, Susanna Creese and Nikki Gardner, thank you so much. We could talk the length and breadth of Europe all day, but uh, sadly, we must now uh, thank you. Um, of course, you can buy the book Europe by Rail, the definitive guide for independent travellers, and subscribe to the excellent Hidden Europe magazine. Yes, and uh, let me add my thanks uh, for the very good tips and uh, the interesting tales. Um, Next week, we're going to be testing you all with our premium world-beating Christmas quiz. Um, but until then, from me, Mick Webb. And from Susanna and from Nikki and me, Simon Calder, goodbye. 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 goodbye.